you know, she's like our number one listener. So um, uh, Luke uh, set some of that up for us. And then I uh, post them, and then Chris remembers to record them. And so thank you guys uh, from on behalf of my mother. And um, and Kelly brought me the phone, which we don't use anymore because it broke. So I don't know if this is the first time I'm telling you, I'm sorry for that. Kelly had the vision for it, and so um, a lot of people involved in that process. So thank you on behalf of my mother, right? Um, Kelly got me a shirt um, because I, I made the unfortunate thing. I said the unfortunate thing that if you get me a shirt, I wear it. And so, um, so I got a great Halloween shirt this week. I got another uh, vintage tee for my wife because it's Pastor Appreciation Month. And so it says something about ninjas and being a pastor. And so it fits me well. So thank you to my wife for doing that. And um, so uh, I just um, I am I'm overwhelmed by being your pastor and, and what you guys are to me in my life and all those things. So um, on Pastor Appreciation Month, I just want to kind of flip that around and say thank you for for letting me be your pastor. And for um, sometimes we get started, you know, and it's 930, which our website says we start then. And I'm the only one in here. And I'm like, today's the day that, it, you know, everything folds. But by 945 ish, you guys are all here. And so thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm doubly excited to preach today. Um, I, I began preparing this, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago and, and really began like on Tuesday looking at it and man, my week has just been good. Just this, this brings me such peace just as I walk through this and it answers questions that sometimes dwell up in my mind. So I'm excited to jump into, to what we're talking about today. Before we jump into that, let me say this, uh, Jess and I, um, if you know us at all, you know that, that sometimes we don't keep up with things super well. Um, Jess, Jess, uh, well, for one, Chris this week called me and, and asked if he could borrow the church computer, just dragged me along for a while and asked if he could borrow the computer. And I was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, where is it at your house? And I'm like, yeah, it's, I'm sure it's at my house. And, um, and then he just dragged me on and then eventually said, Luke has the computer. You forgot it at the sportsplex. So, um, so anyway, I tend to forget things, you know, if you haven't noticed. And uh, Jess tends to uh, forget where she put her phone and her keys, which we always need right when we're running out the door. And I tend to, she gets all Molly stuff together. That's all there. It's the phone and the keys. I tend to lose my wallet. That's my number one thing to lose. I tend to find it too. So I've had this wallet for three years, but with month, you know, increments in the middle where I couldn't find it. But anyway, we lose things constantly. Here's what we always say. I say, Jess, where did you put it? And she goes, it's here somewhere. Anybody else do that? I'm like, obviously it is here somewhere. We're content to search because we know that it is bound to be there somewhere. I ask you a question. Um, is God real? Is God real? Some people are saying yes. Some people are like, I don't know. Is God real? Some people tolerate tolerate religion because they believe that God is out there somewhere. Like, I'm okay. They're okay with some people looking for him because he's got to be out there somewhere, you know. And if it's not the God of the Bible, it's some supernatural force. It's out there somewhere, so we're content to look for him. Some people can't stand religion or, or just have no need for it because they would say that, that there are better ways to explain the phenomenons that we can't explain or the way the earth began or all those different kind of things. And so they say there's no need for all that because God is not out there. I'm not looking for my 40-foot yacht because it's not out there. 
You know, I don't own one. The search is, is futile, and we don't need all of that. Getting out of the super philosophical world and getting back into the world where I lose my keys all the time. Um, you've probably asked this question in a real simple way before. And maybe at some point we've all said, you know, um, you know, maybe it wasn't God that helped me get that job. You know, I prayed about it a lot and then I got it. And maybe it wasn't God or maybe it wasn't God that kept me from getting that job. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe it was all these other things. Maybe, you know, when my, my grandmother got better from, from cancer, you know, and the doctors, did, they said they didn't do it. And it seemed like a total miracle. Maybe there was something that explains it. And, and maybe it's not God. And maybe in some way or another, the question has crossed your mind. Or if it hasn't, there's somebody really close to you, your son or your daughter or your cousin or your mother, or somebody, very close, somebody real close to you has said, has asked the question or has stated it as fact that God is not real. Maybe not meanly and maybe meanly, but they've said it to you, God is not real. So here's what we're going to do. For a month, we're going to explore the idea of whether or not God is real. And we're, gonna, we're not just going to tip our toes in. We're going to jump in today head first and ask the question, is God real? Any God at all? You know, anything out there? Is anything out there? And secondly, is the God of the Bible the real one? Like if we can establish that he's out there, is the God of the Bible, is that the real God? So here's what I'd encourage you to do. If, if, you, if people are asking you this question or people are in your life and, and they're always saying these things, take some notes today, right? If you're on your phone and you're texting, I, you know, I'm going to assume that you're taking notes on there, right? Take some notes on there. But do me a favor. Don't go home and you just start reading your notes to all the people that don't believe in God because they're just not, they don't care about that, right? Um, here's what they do care about. They're going to see God so much more in the way that you love them than they do in the way that you say, see, I told you you were wrong because this, 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 and this, right? Take some notes today. I think you'll, I think you'll appreciate uh, having some of this stuff in your mind. So here we go. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Acts 17, 16. If you ever thought, man, it seems like used to be uh, everybody believed in God, or man, it seems like used to be we didn't have these conversations, or it seems like used to be, you know, uh, we were more religious. And all, if you ever thought all those things, uh, if you jump into Acts chapter 17, what you will realize is that you are pretty wrong. Because for a long, long time, the questions that we ask today, we were, we've been asking, right? It's not a new question. You're not revolutionary to stand up and say God is dead or God is not real. And, and no one around you is, is doing things that no one has ever done when they ask those questions. You are not, your cousin is not, your mother is not, your friend is not, the people you don't know. Uh, all those people are in very good company when they ask the question, is God real? And are you sure that you're right about God? Here's what we're going to do. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Uh, I'm going to read this from, from this version called The Message. And so uh, that's going to annoy you a little bit probably because it's, a little, it's, it's going to be very different from what you have. But the message is just super readable. And so I don't really read it regularly, but just for this. So, so as we walk back through the text, I'm going to be in the NIV. But this I'm going to read in, in the message, all right? So here we go. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, The longer Paul waited in Athens, right, that's in Greece, the longer Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy, the angrier he got. All those idols. We've seen these idols everywhere. Because you remember like Greek and Roman society, they got idols everywhere. Uh, the city was a junkyard of idols. 
He discussed it with the Jews and other like-minded people at their meeting place. And every day he went out in the streets and talked with anyone who happened along. Right, so don't say a whole lot about street preachers, right, because it looks like that's what Paul did. Um, He got to know some of the Epicurean and Stoic intellectuals pretty well through these conversations. Some of them dismissed him with sarcasm. What an airhead. That's definitely not the Greek, right? But others, listening to him go on and on about Jesus and the resurrection, were intrigued. That's a new slant on the gods. Tell us more. Verse 19, these people got together and asked him to make a public presentation over at the Areopagus. And you guys remember from Greek study what the Areopagus is? That's this big spot on top of a hill right outside of, of, of Greece, right, right outside of Athens, where people would get together and, and they would try people and, uh, or, they would, or they would debate philosophy. And if you read all that philosophy stuff that you learned in school, this is where all that stuff happened. And the Areopagus is this, is this incredible place where people would stand up and put forth some of the most revolutionary philosophical ideas in history. And so Paul's standing up in this place where, where so many of these, these philosophers have stood before, and he's going to give a defense of Jesus. Stands up here in the Areopagus. You've got these philosophers all around him, philosophers, academians, all those things. Stands up there where things were a little quieter, and they said, this is a new one on us. We've never heard anything quite like it. Where did you come up with this anyway? Everything that Paul's been saying about Jesus. Explain it so we can understand. Downtown Athens was a great place for gossip. There were always people hanging around, natives and tourists alike, waiting for the latest tidbit on most anything. Basically, these people love to sit around and talk about things. Verse 22 and 23. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed, To the God Nobody Knows. These people have this whole shrine, and at the bottom it says, To the God Nobody Knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently. Know who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it. He's going to introduce them to the God of the Bible. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him. He can't, we can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well. We're the God created. Well, if we are the God created, doesn't it make a lot of sense to think we could hire... Doesn't it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel a God out of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as if you, you don't know it. God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. But that time has passed. The unknown God is now known. And he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. And there's a little more there. Do you get the idea? Paul stands before them. And these people, they're so afraid that they're going to offend one of the gods, right? That they have this, this, this whole thing, and it says they have a, a, a god, this, this thing erected, and it says to the unknown god. Because they're so afraid they're going to offend some god they haven't heard of, that they have this thing that says, just in case there's a god we forgot about it, we don't want him to be mad and strike us down. So we're going to build this whole monument to this unknown god. 
And Paul stands before them to, uh, to give a defense of Jesus. Here's what we get in this passage. We get all these different explanations for the existence of God. So here, as we jump through it, I'm going to give you kind of like the three things that people tend to think about God. These are the three things that, that people are going to dwell on when they talk about God. Number one, the first response to God is the atheist response. In short, the atheist just says no. He's that guy in verse 16 and again in verse 29 who's making idols. Because the basic idea of, of atheism is that God is a work of humanity. You know, like we made him and, and we can make him. And so, so what we do with our hands, what you see around us, that is the closest thing to God that we'll get. And you and I, alongside the atheist, uh, have a lot of gods that we've created. Anything that we put in the place of God that, that, that consumes our time and gives us purpose and, and fulfills us and all the things that God would do for us, anything that we put in that place, that becomes a God to us. The atheist came to prominence in the U.S. in around uh, the 1960s. Any of you guys ever see that Time magazine cover and it's a black cover and it says, Is God Dead? Anybody seen that? In the mid-60s, that's when we began the conversation in the United States about uh, atheism. Mind you, that, that, that was 35 cents to purchase that, and now it's worth like a few hundred bucks, so if you'd got in early. Um, the atheist response, in short, is no. Uh, the agno agnostic response, you see it in there too. The agnostic response, you see in verse 18, you got these Epicureans and these Stoics, right? And they're the agnostics, and what the agnostics say, in short, is maybe. And so their whole idea is maybe God is out there. That's what the Epicureans would say. They would say maybe God's out there and, and maybe he's not. But one thing's for sure, he's not involved in what we do every day. And so what you and I do in our daily lives has nothing to do with God. He doesn't get involved in our lives. And so maybe he's out there, maybe he's not. We don't know, but it doesn't really matter. And so that's another response to God. Uh, the last one is the one that I pray that you and I are in and the one that I pray that you and I care about, right? That is the advocate. And the advocate, in short, says, yes, God is real. And this verse, Paul is the advocate. Um, here's something interesting about being an advocate, right? You can be, being an advocate for the existence of God doesn't make you a Christian. Being an advocate for the existence of God doesn't make you a Christian. But not being an advocate for the existence of God means you're certainly not a Christian. Right, because Jesus said, he said, so you believe in God, so what? So do the demons, right? They, they believe in God and it makes them shudder. Just believing in God doesn't make you a Christian. But to be a Christian, you've got to believe in God. You have to, at minimum, be an advocate. Not all advocates are Christians, but all Christians are advocates. So here we go. There are the three responses to God. Now, before I tell you kind of the arguments for God, the part that that man just really that, that I love to jump into, uh, let me drop some truth on you. Right. That is going to blow your socks off. Right. Or maybe you've heard it before. It's just going to tickle your toes a little bit or something like that. But pretty interesting stuff about the Bible that maybe you don't know. OK, here's something about the Bible. The Bible never attempts to explain the existence of God. Did you know that? Nowhere in the Bible does it attempt to explain that God exists. And here's the, here's the idea. If I'm telling you a story about my mom, I'm not like, you know, um, my mom, she exists, right? She was born on this day. You can check the hospital records and you can talk to her dad or you can talk to I'm her son. Obviously, therefore, she existed, right? I, if I'm telling you a story about her, I'm just, I'm just launching into the story because it makes sense that I am here. Therefore, she must be there, right? 
And so the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to the end assumes that God exists. And it assumes that God is there because it is a story about God. The Bible never attempts to explain his existence. But here's what we can do. And here's what Paul does. Paul says, here's what we can do. We can look around at the world and we can look at what God created and it can tell us a heck of a lot about the existence of God. So I'm going to drop some big words on you, right? So, um, uh, but, and obviously I didn't come up with these words, but they're going to tell you, it's just going to begin to give us a framework for how we can look around and see for sure that God exists. Here we go. The first argument, you see it in, in, verse, in chapter 17, you see it in verse 22 and 23, and it's called the ontological argument, right? The ontological argument is, is talking about the concept of God. And it's this idea that if you go anywhere in the world, you go to a tribe that, that has never had contact with anybody else throughout their, their history as a tribe, and, and if you track them down, they're going to have some concept of God. And they're going to talk in some way about a higher power, something bigger than them. And then if you come all the way back over to the most developed societies in the world, there are going to be a few people who talk about God. And how on earth is it that from the beginning of time till now, that without any inside influence, outside influence, you and I and people all around the world say have some concept of God? How does that kind of thing happen? And the idea is that happens because God has revealed himself to us. And God has made it clear to us that he exists. The skeptic would say religion is like this evolutionary coping mechanism, right? So when people die, we make ourselves feel better by saying, well, God must exist and then there's a heaven and so we get to go there and we get to see them again and so we feel a little bit better. And they would say, you know, uh, that's just a way that we cope. Science is helping us kind of uh, debunk some of those things. But but what I'd say to you is, you know, um, we're not coping super well. Would you agree? We're not doing that great. And if we were to develop a mechanism to help us cope, surely we would do better than God because we're not, we're not doing that great. Evolution would have said, move on by now. Figure out something else to, to help you cope better and to help you do better, right? Because God not, God's not getting all those things done. And so it doesn't make sense that it's an evolutionary trait, right? Because if it were evolutionary, we would figure out something that works a little bit better. It must be that God throughout history has revealed himself to people. Okay, can I be honest with you? you I mean, I'm being honest the whole time, right? Um, but if I can be honest with you, um, that idea never really resonated with me. Like, I believe it. You know, I believe it to be true. Um, but it doesn't really, you know, it's not one of those things that I read and I'm like, oh, that, you know, that helps me get who God is. But these next two, these, man, really put it in perspective for me. The other thing that, that Paul talks about in, in 1724 um, is, is this idea of the cosmological argument. Uh, the cosmological argument is sort of like it's about the origin of matter. And so the idea is that there's a scientific reality that everything came from something, right? And so if you see a kid in the grocery store and he's like acting crazy, you don't go, look what the universe did, you know? No, you say, where are your parents? Right. Or, or your parents must be this or that. You know, if a kid's terrible, you're, you're thinking that that something is wrong with his parents. You don't assume that this just happened by no means. Everything comes from something. This guy, Charlie Ryrie, he writes this. He says, if something now exists, this is the idea. Then it either came from nothing or it came from something. I put this little graphic up there. because It's kind of a kind of a um, 
kind of a, a philosophical abstract idea. So let's flip to that. I'm just going to chill for a minute. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, here we go. Um, this is the argument that he says. This is the cosmological argument. So the world exists, right? The effect already happened. So either, so here are the two arguments. Either the world came, option one, either the world exists and before it was nothing, so it came from absolutely nothing, or the world exists and it came from something. And which one of these takes more faith to believe? That there was something before the world or that the world just came out of nowhere? I think it takes more faith to not believe in God than it takes faith to believe in God. This guy, uh, Robert Jastrow, he was this NASA scientist who worked for NASA. He was this leading guy for a long, long time. Had a whole lot of quotes about, about just the reality of, of science and the existence of God. And, and man, I, I love these things. But here's one of the things he says. He says, now we see the astronomical evidence. So the more that we learn about, about space and how things were created, the, now we see the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. So here's what he says. You guys heard of the Big Bang Theory? You're like, I watched the show. I don't know why it's called that, right? Um, but the Big Bang Theory, this idea that, that, it, that something out there exploded, and, and so we don't know what happened before the explosion because everything that was there before, you know, was destroyed in the explosion, but something exploded, and then life as we know it kind of began. And doesn't that kind of sound like God speaking things into existence, Right? A void of nothingness, because that's the idea. There was a void. God speaks something into existence, and now it's all there. It's like the more we learn, the more it seems to make sense. Some details missing there, right? But the more it seems to make sense that, uh, that maybe this is just how it happened. He says, scientists have no proof that life was the, was the result of an act of creation. Or, sorry, scientists have no proof that life was not the result of an act of creation. But here's what scientists do. They can't prove that there was no creation, but they're just bound by the nature of the discipline to try to find something within the natural law, something they can grasp and hold on to. They're trying, they, they've got to find something that must have created everything. Here's what we do, just like these leading scientists. What we do is, is, is we, we get all of our, we say, is God real? And then we try to trace it back and we say, well, if I was created, what was before me and everything? And so you go back in time and you say, this was created. And so something must have created everything. But where did it all begin? You know, where, where was the beginning point? And you say, there must have been something that created the thing in the beginning. And the thing that was first must have not been created, right? Because if something was created, then it must have been created by something. And so we go through all these realms and, and so the only thing that logically we can arrive at is there must have been some sort of original creator. And, and what, the, what, the, what the scientist tends to do is, is he says, once he gets all the way there and he says, there must have been some creator, he says, no, 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 that can't be it. We've got to start all over. Because we just have trouble accepting this reality. Here's the, the last quote that he says, and this is the quote that I read that really turned me on to him, you know, when I first started learning about him. But, and I love this. He says, um, for the scientist who's lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. So he's, he's done all the research that he can. He's about to conquer the highest peak. He's finally going to, years in the future, he's going to finally figure out how everything started. And right as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. 
And his idea is that what we're going to do is we're going to go through all this, and what we're going to find out at the end is that God was there the whole time. And we didn't find him or we didn't discover him, right? He was there the entire time. Let's keep going. This is pretty fun, right? Um, the next argument is the evidence of design. This one, this one speaks to me. This is kind of the first one that I said, man, that makes sense to me. The evidence of design. Uh, the, the theological word is called the teleological argument. It's, again, it's 1724 is where Paul's kind of, kind of putting this thing out there. But here's the idea. Our world is, is incredibly complex. And when you look around, you know, things, things that you see in nature are so much more complex than, than buildings that we build and things that we make. And, and so within that complexity, we find this incredible amount of order. And logic tells us that where there is order and where there is design, there must be a designer. This guy, Ryrie, says this. He says, random action could never have produced the highly integrated organization which we observe in the world. He says it like this. Here's the idea about God, right? He says, consider a pack of toothpicks, right? If, if you have a pack of toothpicks and they're all real neatly aligned in there, you know, how they come in the box, and, uh, and, and then you set a firecracker in there and the firecracker explodes, uh, what comes out is not a, a toothpick bridge, Right. That's perfectly arranged and, and gets you from somewhere to somewhere else. Now, when when something explodes, right, what tends to happen is chaos. Everything blows up. And so that doesn't really make sense with the way that the world works and the way that it looks. He says um, somebody else says, when you see a jet, you don't assume that a tornado hit a junkyard and then a, a Boeing 747 flew out of that mess. Right. You don't assume that there was all this chaos, everything floating around. And then all of a sudden there was a big jet that came out of it. When you see a jet, you assume someone built it and you assume that someone created it and designed it. And the idea here is that creation screams creator. Uh, When uh, I was in Laos, when I was in college. We're going through these caves. Yeah, we're going through these caves. And um, and supposedly no one's ever been here. You know, now I'm sure they tell everybody that, you know, so you feel like you're a real explorer. But you're going through here and supposedly no one's ever been. And and so, you know, there's no there's no signs that are like end of cave this way. You know, nothing like that. So as we're going through, um, uh, if if I'm going through there and, and all of a sudden I'm going where no one has ever been and I see, a, you know, a Rolex. Do I now naturally assume that no one has ever been here? When I see the Rolex, I'm like, I want my money back, right? Because somebody's been here before. And when we look around and we see all the things around us with such order and such design, we don't say clearly no one's been here. Clearly no one designed this. We say because this is here, it must have been designed. That's what makes the most sense. Before we move on to the last argument, um, if you guys, if you care to, uh, if you Google uh, pets that have killed their owners, don't do an image search. That may be nasty, right? But if you just Google it and you click on some of the links, um, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. There's this huge list of, of people that have owned animals and they're cuddling with them and all that kind of stuff. And there's like, you know, lions and tigers and I want to say bears next, but, you know, all kind of stuff like that. And there's one guy with a boa constrictor. And there's all these cute pictures of them. And they don't have, like, the death pictures, you know. But, but it's like you see all these animals. And then it tells the story of how the animal turned around and killed them after all this love and affection. And, and 
sort of the idea is, for as much as you may feel like your dog is the only person who you can relate to, you know, who really gets you, you recognize that you are very, very different from your pet. Even as much as you may not like the person sitting next to you, and don't look around and sneer, right? But as much as you may not like them or feel like you are so different from them, you're so much more like them than your animal, then, you know, that's just how it is. People are a unique thing. Animals kill people that they love, you know, just because they have a fear and and they don't feel remorse about it. They're not feeling upset. They're not feeling sad. There are emotions and feelings that you have that are absolutely unique to you as a human. The last argument, and and Paul kind of hits this in in verses 28 and 29, if you've still got your Bible open, where he talks about being made in the image of God. It's called the anthropological argument. It's talking about the uniqueness of humans. And here's how it works. Humans differ from all the rest of creation in that we have this, we possess intellect. And some of you are like, oh, you haven't met so-and-so, right? But we do. We possess intellect, right? We possess moral judgment. We have self-awareness. And we have the knowledge of God. Uh, Dogs don't sit around and think, what happens when this life ends? Right? That's unique to us as humans. Those are things that only we do. And how can we honestly explain those differences without saying we must be set apart somehow? Consider your moral conscience, right? Animals, they don't don't feel bad. They don't have a moral objection to stealing or killing, but we do. Consider our intellect, right? How can our minds simply have evolved to this this place where we are? When you consider that like, like dolphins have this thing called echolocation. You guys heard that? I may have said it wrong. So you can be somewhere way, way away in the ocean, miles, right? And, and, and they hear the echo and they can pinpoint your location. Sometimes I'm in the house and Jess is like, I need help. And I'm like, where are you? And she's like, right here. And I'm like, I need a room name. You know, I don't know where you are. And so, man, some things animals do with their mind is so much better than what we do, right? And so if, if it's all just about evolutionary advancement, and, and I believe that we do advance and get better and adapt to our surroundings, right? I believe all those things to be true. But if that's the result, if that's the only reason why we're unique, wouldn't we have developed some additional things? You know, most of the world, 70% of the world is made up of water. Wouldn't we be swimming? Wouldn't that make more sense? We would have no space issues if we just started swimming, right? There'd be a lot of things that we would do if it was just evolutionary advancement. It must not be that. It must be that we were made specifically in the image of God. So these are philosophical arguments, but by no means is it concrete proof, right, that that God exists or that the God of the Bible is real or that Jesus is even the Son of God. But I want you to know that there is truth that this is the case. Check this out. There is one one piece of indisputable historical evidence that the God of the Bible is God. And that's the resurrection of Jesus. Paul hits at this. After he goes through all these other arguments, where he ends with these people is saying, Jesus has to be the thing. And if, if the resurrection is not real, then we might as well go home. We might as well start working on Sundays or going to the lake or something, you know, something different, right? Because this is not doing us a lot of good if the resurrection isn't real. This is pretty interesting. There's this guy named Richard Swinburne. 
He's a uh, philosophy professor at uh, at Oxford, or he was years ago. Still publishes a lot of stuff, and so uh, he's, he he kind of uses probability to to determine whether or not things in the Bible are real. He uses these accepted probability models. This guy stood before a group of philosophers at Yale, and and he goes through this this whole thing, trying to to assign a probability to whether or not the resurrection of Jesus really happened. So, so here's what he says. He says, for someone dead for 36 hours to come to life again is, according to the laws of nature, extremely improbable. Let me interpret for you. Extremely improbable simply means we've never seen it happen. We don't think it can happen, but we will never say never, and so we say extremely improbable. He's saying, right, this kind of thing just does not happen according to the laws of nature. Then he uses this theorem to assign values to things like the probability of God being real, right? Whether or not Jesus' behavior during his lifetime was accurate, the quality of the witness testimony after Jesus' death. He plugs all those things into this big thing to try to, to, try to use these, these accepted theorems and, and these accepted probabilities. And, and when he plugs it all into this probability formula, the result was a 97% probability that the resurrection really happened. I want to tell you something interesting. There's a lower probability that the Great Wall of China exists, and you can walk on it. So if we're just, if we're just going according to secular theory about the likelihood of something happening, right, the likelihood of it happening is very, very likely. And so what some people would say is, how can this story be right? You know, how can the resurrection of Jesus be correct? And the truth is, just cognitively with our brains, we believe it for the same reason we believe anything else. I believe that China was founded. And you know what? I don't know any of the details. I don't know the founder. I don't know any of that. But you know what? Every now and then I meet a person from China. And I don't believe that there's a whole race of people that were like, we all look alike. So when you see Adam, tell him that we're from China. And let's develop all this system of things. You know, let's add it in the history books. Let's create wars that didn't happen. Let's create this huge hoax. Um, So Adam believes, and some other people, that China exists. I believe it exists because it makes the most sense. I see Chinese people. There's no value in the lie. And there's a heck of a lot of written, historical, documented things that say that it actually happened. And I can believe that Jesus' resurrection happened for the same reasons. I can believe that Jesus died and rose again three days later uh, because there is more than ample, written, verified documented history. I see Christians everywhere. And and for people that have died for their faith throughout the centuries, it didn't make sense for them to keep the lie up. It was only to their detriment for them to believe that. And so in as much as I can trust any historical document, I can trust the pages of Scripture that say Jesus died and three days later he rose again. Let me finish with this story. Man, it... Brings it home to me, right? Um, Charles Coulson, this guy. Uh, if you if you did a whole lot of history study, right, you may have heard of this guy. Charles Coulson is um, he's doing his most of his life in prison because uh, he was involved in the Watergate scandal. So um, so he started this. He became a Christian after he went to jail. Started this ministry called the Prison Fellowship, 
And uh, if people ask him, he says he gets it all the time in prison, people ask him about Christ's resurrection, here's what he says. He says, my answer about whether or not that was real is that the disciples and 500 other people, 500 people, gave eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus risen from the tomb. But then they say, how do you know that all 500 of these people didn't get together and say, let's tell this story because, you know, for, for this reason or that reason, let's tell this story and we'll all be in on it together. And he says, I can tell you that that's not true because of my experience with Watergate. He says, Watergate involved a conspiracy of just a few people. And just a few people knew this terrible thing that they were doing. And, um, and, and shortly, two weeks after they were indicted, two weeks after they were indicted, they had determined that they were going to go to their graves with this story. And two weeks after they were indicted, one of them comes out and says, this is absolutely not true. And he, and he told the whole story about how none of it happened. And two weeks later, he did it because he didn't want to go to prison. And he says, man, if, if, if it only takes two weeks for someone to, to unravel the whole thing, you know, and the only thing he's facing is, is prison time, if it only takes two weeks, why on earth would Jesus' disciples, at the expense of their own death, to their dying breath, maintain that Jesus died and rose again? I mean, just before that, Peter was about, just before Jesus was resurrected, Peter had spent all this time with Jesus. And, and then, you know, uh, Jesus, he denies Jesus three times because he's afraid that he'll be killed. And then Jesus dies and then rises again. And now Peter is going to die for it. And all these other guys are going to die for it. And, and only good things happen to them if they say, you know what, we made it all up. Then they get to live. Then they get to move on with their lives. Then they get to be accepted back into society. Only good things happen if they, if, they, if they say that it didn't happen, right? So why would they maintain it all the way down to the point of death? It must be because it was absolutely true. Because when Jesus said, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise again, they were like, we don't really get what you're saying. And then Jesus died, and they were really sad and depressed because they didn't get it. And then Jesus showed back up, and they were like, we saw him die. We stood there the whole time. We saw the grave. We saw him go in it. We saw the whole thing. And now here he is standing before us. And because they had seen it, they died for it. And what he ends his story with, he says, you can take it from an expert in cover-ups, having lived through Watergate, that nothing less than a resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus Jesus is alive and is Lord. People only die for things that they absolutely believe to be true. And they don't die for a lie that has no benefit to them. The truth is, Jesus is Lord. It's a historical fact, and no matter how you look at it, it's convincingly established by the evidence. And my prayer is that those of you that don't follow him, and, and, and those of you that know people who don't follow him, that those people would follow him. Because if it's all else true, if, if all else of that is true, it must be also true when Jesus said, the only way to the Father is through me. And so what he's saying is, submitting your life to Jesus as Savior is the only way to be his child. Submitting your life to Jesus as your Savior is the only way to inherit the promise of heaven. Let me pray for you. God, I, I praise you for the reality that you are real. 
And you're not something that I've concocted in my mind to make me feel better. And, and, and even when I begin to say in, in a weak moment, God, is all this real? You know, I can look at, at what you've created and, man, I can just be so sure that absolutely you are real and you are good. And so, God, I thank you for that truth. God, I pray that, that people that don't follow you would just be open to saying, open to the inquiry of looking around and digging deeply and just seeing what the truth is. And then I pray, God, that they would follow you. God, I pray that we would be people that would take this truth and live differently knowing that you are real and knowing that when all this ends, we're going to spend an eternity with you. God, I pray that as we come for communion, I pray that, that we would just, just sink these words deep into ourselves, God, and take your word to give us some affirmation that we are absolutely doing what is good and right when we gather here to worship you. God, we praise you for who you are. Amen.